was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Tony nominee, Tony Sheldon. Mr. Sheldon made his mark on the Australian stage, starring in productions of such shows as Torch Song Trilogy, I Hate Hamlet, Into the Woods, Private Lives, Falsettos, Merrily We Roll Along, Company, The Sisters Rosenzweig, Noises Off, Once in a Lifetime, I Love My Wife, Dracula, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Fame, The Glass Menagerie, The Fantastics, The Odd Couple, The Chalk Garden, Much Ado About Nothing, and Equus. His work on screen includes writing for the soap operas Home and Away and Sons and Daughters, as well as the TV movie Doctors and Nurses. He came from Australia to England and then Broadway with his Tony-nominated performance in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and continued to take New York by storm in Amelie on Broadway, The Bandwagon at City Center, Charles Bush's Cleopatra, Hello Dolly with Clea Blackhurst at Goodspeed Opera House, Icon with Donna McKechnie at NYMT, Pego My Heart at the York Theater, and so much more. He's also a familiar face on the cabaret circuit, having appeared at Birdland, 54 Below, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Le Poisson Rouge, and more. So without further ado, here he is, Tony Sheldon. So, well, I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater, how it started for you. Well, it was the family business. Um, My grandparents were stars in vaudeville. Um, My grandmother started as a, a very tiny child. I think she was part of a troupe called the Sunshine Kitties. And as she got older, she graduated to become the featured Sunshine Kitty. And uh, when she left them, she started out on her own in Vaudeville. This is all in Australia, of course. Um, And uh, she had an act with a ukulele and she was known as the cutie with the uke. And uh, she used to do comedy and, and sing. And then as she got older, she started doing like dramatic monologues and songs. And she introduced the song Secondhand Rose to, uh, to Australia. She's actually on the sheet music. And um, then she became um, a leading lady at the Tivoli, which was sort of the big vaudeville circuit in Australia, where they used to import big stars from America and England. And um, Olsen and Johnson came out. They uh, they were very taken with her and they wanted to bring her back to Hollywood with them. They said, you could be the new Alice Faye. And she had fallen in love with a comedian who was also on the circuit here. And she said, no, she said, I'm going to stay here and get married. And um, so she married my grandfather, Joe Lawman. And... Uh, <clears throat> they had a um, a little girl who was my mother, Tony, Tony Lamond. And uh, unfortunately, 
<laughs> she she went off on a tour separately and she said to her best friend who was a girl in the chorus um you keep an eye on joe while i'm away to make sure he doesn't get up to any mischief well joe and the chorus girl ran off together <laughs> and my my grandmother's marriage was over um but uh, she later met another comedian by the name of Max Reddy, and uh, they got married several years later, and they had a child, Helen Reddy, who is my aunt, who, of course, grew up to become a famous singing star. Um, so anyway, my mother also started in show business at the age of 10. Um, the little girl with the big voice uh, again uh, became a variety performer and uh, she had a beautiful singing voice. She was very pretty blonde and her singing voice was very much like Rosemary Clooney or uh, Margaret Whiting, that sort of a sound. And um, she met my father in a variety show. My dad was a dancer. And uh, dad had danced in the chorus of Annie Get Your Gun and yeah. an English musical called Zip Goes a Million. And they got married and had me. And then not long after that, um, they were cast in The Pajama Game. Oh. Now, this is a whole other story about Australian musical theatre, which uh, Australian musical theatre was run by like three major conglomerates at the time. Um, and it was mostly they would import the stars to, to come out from America. The, they were publicised as direct from Broadway, these people oh. that they brought out, but they were invariably the understudies or people who'd done the, the roles in Summerstock. And uh, Australians accepted that because this was the time before the internet and we all tended to believe what we were told. Uh, uh, however, they bought the rights, uh, this company, JC Williamson's, uh, bought the rights to Pajama Game as a fill-in. They were looking for something um, to fill in before West Side Story, uh, not West Side Story, uh, My Fair Lady came in. And uh, I think a booking had fallen out for like six weeks and so they they bought the rights to pajama game and they thought oh it's very american it might not go here um let's just cast it all with australians and we'll see how that goes and it was the first time uh that an all australian cast was was used for a, for an american musical uh they brought out the american director fred hebert who had been the stage manager on the broadway production and they sent the choreographer over from here to work with Bob Fosse and Fosse wouldn't work with her. He was not happy about somebody else doing his choreography. So she sat in the audience for five weeks, the choreographer, and learnt the show from watching it and she notated it. And uh, she came out here anyway. My mother was cast as Babe Williams, the leading lady, mm -hmm. and my dad was one of the steam heat guys and I was 18 months old when Pajama Game opened instant hit instant sensation and it ran for two years and uh, I apparently <clears throat> could sing Hernando's Hideaway <laughs> at the age of 18 months and my mother tells me the story that when the show went on tour and everybody was on the train going from city to city and they'd arrive and the press would all be lined up on the, the platform and the cast of Pajama Game would get off 
you know, waiting to be photographed. And they were all saying, where's the kid? Where's the kid who can sing Hernando's Hideaway? So I had a, a scrapbook full of clippings of, of me blowing out. I used to blow out a match at the end. Hernando's Hideaway, ole, and blow out a match. And uh, so there's a, a lot of photos of this, this tiny child singing this song and blowing out a match. Um, so that was uh, sort of my, my introduction to, to show business. Everybody we knew was in the business. We had no friends outside the industry. And um, my parents, after Pajama Game finished, dad went into Can Can for a while. Uh, then uh, they formed a double act and they went to England for a year. I went to England with them, uh, which was wonderful because that was my first exposure to West End shows. I got to see West Side Story in the West End and um, I saw Once Upon a Mattress. Jane Cannell was, was playing oh. Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress over there. Uh, Most Happy Fella I saw. Um, and so I was four years old and seeing all these wonderful shows. Uh, my mother's career was starting to take off. People, people were more interested in her than in dad because um, she, she was sort of the, the big draw card of the act. Uh, and then my dad got homesick and said, I want to go home. So my poor mother's opportunities in London were sort of nipped in the bud. And she came back here with dad and me. But it was the beginning of television at the time in Australia. And so they got in on the ground floor of, of television in Australia. And my mother became a regular on The Tonight Show, the big five nights a week uh, Tonight Show, which was sort of patterned on the Steve Allen, Gary Moore type shows. So my mother was do, was singing every night on live television and doing comedy sketches because of her vaudeville background. Um, she was gorgeous to look at. She was very pretty. Um, and so dad decided he was sick of being a chorus boy and he trained to become a producer, a TV producer. And, uh, so he started The Tonight Show. So therefore our house was full of like show music all the time because he was always looking for new material. So we'd get all the latest cast albums sent out. Mm -hmm. So all the time we were just hearing all the, the latest stuff from Broadway. And um, when I turned seven, the host of The Tonight Show said, Tony is now legally able to appear on late night television. Uh, for his seventh birthday, would he like to come on and sing a song? Now, I had no real training. My dad sent me to dance classes when I was four and I lasted one class because the teachers realised who my dad was, you know, one of the principal dancers of music theatre in Australia, and they panicked and they tried to teach me everything in one lesson. And I left in tears. I was, I still remember that lesson. I was petrified because I felt like an absolute klutz. And I remember how angry my father was when he came to collect me at the end. And he said, that's it. You're not going to learn dancing. He said, I don't want you to go through that. So to my eternal regret, I, I wasn't trained as a dancer when I was very young. Um, but 
when I was seven, I was allowed to appear on this show and I sang a couple of numbers and I sang a duet with the, the host of the show. We thought that was going to be it. Um, but I was a novelty because there were no children on late night television and I was cute. I sang in tune. I wasn't especially talented, but I was cute. And uh, a lot of people wrote in to the station saying, we want to see more of Tony Sheldon. And I got a contract with The Tonight Show. And every second Wednesday, uh, I would get to leave school early and I would go in and I would rehearse with the band and I'd rehearse with whoever was the guest star that week. And uh, I was only allowed, the show would start at 9.30 and I would have to be off air by 10, according to the child labour laws. So in that half an hour, they would throw everything at me. I would sing, I would dance, I'd do comedy sketches. And then on the stroke of 10, I would be whisked off camera and taken home. Uh, two years I did that. And uh, then at the end of two years, my father fired me because I was getting a bit uppity. I was, uh, I was starting to get a bit blasé about it all. And uh, I, I was nine years old. And I, I think at heart also, I wasn't very happy because I was being very badly bullied at school. Ooh. And um, they didn't like me being on television and getting off early from school once, twice a week and once a week. And, and um, so I think I sort of self-sabotaged there a bit. And so I was taken off the show at the age of nine um, and sent off to boarding school, which I hated. Uh, oh, oh, during this time, my mother went back to the theater. She did Wildcat, the, um, the Lucille Ball show. Uh, that was great because I was allowed to, to sit in a lot on the rehearsals of that. And uh, that was my first time spending a lot of time backstage and uh, watching things like understudy rehearsals. So I was getting a working knowledge of how music theatre worked. And uh, also they brought out the, uh, the director for Wildcat, uh, a guy called Milton Lyon, who had directed it in stock. And the very first thing he said to the cast was, I saw Martha Ray do this role in stock and she, she hammed it up and I hated it. So we're taking all the comedy out of the show. Now, this is a musical that was written for Lucille Ball. And he, he deliberately tried to make it a serious play. Uh, I think they ended up rehearsing for like eight weeks and they ran three three weeks so it was uh, even more of a flop out here than it was on, on Broadway um, anyway uh, fast forward uh, 1966 my mother was cast in Oliver as Nancy and she um, said to me do you want to audition for, for one of the parts in it so I auditioned for the Artful Dodger and I was 10 and I remember flunking the audition really badly. I couldn't remember the choreography and, and I was very nervous. And the director and choreographer said, look, he's, he's a bit young for that role, but would he like to be one of the kids? He can be in one of, the, one of Fagan's gang. And uh, I was allowed to do it in the breaks of my school holidays. Now, what I didn't realize was that my, my parents' marriage was, was in big trouble. 
because my father wanted my mother to retire. He had now reached, a, he was now at the top of his profession as a producer at, at the TV station. And he was producing several shows and he suddenly turned to my mother and said, you can quit now and just be a housewife. And my mother sort of like looked at him. She was 32 or something. <laughs> And she, she went, why would I give up my career? You know, but it was at the time, it was the mid sixties when that was sort of the thing, you know, it was the macho thing of the, the man was the breadwinner. And I think he was asserting his masculinity to an extent, you know, yeah. anyway, it, it, it sort of wrecked the marriage. And I didn't realize this, that my mother had taken the job to sort of get away from him and get away from the TV thing. And so I joined Oliver and that was interesting. That was the first time I'd been around a lot of other showbiz kids. Suddenly I was in a show with 24 other like-minded children. Some of them very flamboyant. Uh, some of them uh, as steeped in show business as I was. It was, it was uh, a whole new world for me. We finished the Sydney season and um, on the closing night, my mother and I were on the train with the rest of the company going back to Melbourne and then we were going to go on to another city and I was going to be in the show there. And uh, they, the police stopped the train to say that my father was dead. Uh, my father had taken his own life and uh, it was because apparently my parents were going to get divorced and he thought he was never going to see me again and this was a whole thing that I knew nothing about yeah so this was a, a huge shock and the headmaster of my school said to my mother I don't think it's a good idea that he continues with the show. He should be with boys of his own age in a stable environment. And the headmaster recommended to my mother that I be put back into boarding school. So I was taken out of Oliver, the environment that I knew, and my mother then went on, on the road. And so I was alone. <laughs> um, so that was, a, that was a very traumatic time. And then the following, she, my mother sort of had a nervous breakdown as a result of all of this happening. And then a couple of years later, she took off and went to England by herself. So here I am in Australia in boarding school alone. So I found solace in my, my cast albums, basically. I used to haunt, the, haunt the, the record stores, the secondhand record stores. And I had a little portable record player and, and uh, I was in a very sports-minded, a very tough almost military boarding school uh, where I did not fit in at all. So I, I started to hide. Um, I found a, a music room, a piano practice room that was very tiny. And I, used, I got a key for it. And I used to hide in there with my portable record player and I would haunt the record stores. And I was finding things like, you know, Gwen Verdon in Redhead, and the, the apple tree came out, I think, around that time and stuff like that. So I'm sitting, learning these scores, and uh, I started to become interested in the history of Australian 
theatre because it wasn't documented. So I started to write a book. By now I was 13, 14. I was you. I was you. And uh, I started interviewing people. And I, um, as I said, this was before uh, the internet. I would go into the newspaper offices and go through their archives. And uh, I started to put together a history of, of Australian musical theatre, which uh, I worked on for about 10 years until my own career took over and I just didn't have the time. But it, it got me in good stead. I was educating myself about, about musical theatre. And uh, for many years, I was able to give lectures and to teach uh, the subject, um, which was great. So that's, that's the long story. And um, also, while I was at this boarding school, um, I started doing school plays. We had a, um, a couple of teachers who were doing really interesting things like Harold Pinter plays, Tom Stoppard. And I suddenly realised that I had a talent for drama. It had always worried me that I wasn't a trained dancer like daddy. I couldn't really sing like mummy. Um, I certainly had no affinity for pop music like Auntie Helen. Uh, I didn't know, I knew I was gonna go into the business in some way, but I didn't know how I was gonna fit in. And suddenly by doing these plays, I realised I had a, a talent for straight drama. And so I really focused on that. And uh, I, I quit school before, I didn't finish school. I just knew I had to, to get out and get, get out into the world. Um, so I decided I'm going to be like a great Shakespearean actor. Then I made the fatal mistake <laughs> of um, seeing Godspell which had just come out and absolutely uh, won my heart. And that, so that became my new ambition. I, as soon as I leave school, I'm going to be in Godspell. And I auditioned five times and I got right down to the finals, but I was 16. And the director wrote me a letter and said, um, everybody else on the stage looks like your parents. You know, it's, you, look, you just look too young. And they said, um, have, have patience, your time will come. And uh, I, I held on to that letter for, for a long time. Uh, that, that gave me the strength to, uh, to go on. And uh, so, yes, my, when I left school, I pursued a career as, as a dramatic actor. And, uh, and that is the long answer to your very short question. Oh, well, yes, yes. Well, I, I would love to know more about this book that you were mentioning that you were working on. So what was the experience like of doing those interviews that you mentioned? It was, um, it was probably, I, I think people were, once they got over their shock that this, this child was, you know, um, I mean, I was getting on planes and, and flying around Australia to interview people, um, that they were surprised that people knew about their careers, because a lot of these people, I was talking about shows from the 1940s, and, and uh, they, they were very flattered that, um that, that I was taking an interest in their career and uh, and asking for photographs. I, I, I made a lot of friends. It, it was, uh, I had a lot of connections from Oliver as well, uh, mm. that, that I had stayed friends with a lot of those people from the chorus. And uh, a lot of those people were going from show to show. And so I had um, stayed in touch with them and seen everything. When I was in boarding school, I used to run away every Saturday when, when the football games were on. And uh, I'd go and see whatever shows were on. And uh, 
the theater managers all knew me, so they would comp me in. And so I was seeing, you know, half a sixpence eight times and and, uh, I do, I do seven times and all that. Uh, The other thing I didn't mention to you was that when I was doing Oliver, um, Sweet Charity started rehearsing out out here. And um, ever since Pajama Game, the door had opened for Australians to start getting leading roles. We were still getting the occasional American was coming in, but um, Funny Girl and Charity both opened in the same year with Australians in the lead and they created stars. A woman uh, called Nancy Hayes who played Charity, who's still, still going strong. And I just wrote her cabaret act for it last year. Um, We've continued working together. But uh, I was allowed at the age of 10 to sit in on the rehearsals of Sweet Charity. And that was absolutely mind-blowing to me to to see all that Bob Fosse choreography. And I I arrived on a day when they were running all the numbers back to back. It was like they said, all right, let's start with, with... the first number and then, and then they then they did Big Spender and then they did The Fruit and then they did something better than this. Then they did like literally back to back. I I thought my brain was going to explode. And I saw the, sh- the, the rehearsals, about three or four rehearsals and I learnt the choreography and I had the album and I used to go to, to people's houses like Christmas parties and I would say, right, everybody sit down and I would put the album on and I would do Sweet Charity for People at the age of 10, this slightly overweight 10-year-old doing There's Got to Be Something Better Than This. And I would just dance around the room. And then if I forgot the choreography, I'd just stop and say, oh, I've forgotten what happens here. And then I'd pick it up again. Lord knows what people thought of me. So um, I, I look back, I must have been quite a sight marching into these people's houses and, and saying, now, when you were in Call Me Madam in 1954 and you know, ask, asking these questions, um, it was thrilling, except I felt very alone. I had nobody to share it with. Nobody else really had my interest. And I think people just thought I was weird. Um, so I, I was very much living in a world of my own. And I, I think I'm still in that world. Um, I, I still care a lot about the history of Australian musical theatre and I don't think anybody else really does. Um, other people have written the, the books that I never wrote. Um, I did let have to hand over that material to other people when my acting career took off. I just didn't have the time to do it. Um, but other, so other people have now written a couple of books about the histories of specific theatres out here and, and, and about Australian musical theatre, which is great. Um, so it, it, it gave me a lifelong hobby and a lifelong love. What it also did was when I arrived in New York, I knew who everybody was. I'd also like collected every single is- uh, edition of Theatre World, the Theatre World annuals. And we're really jumping ahead here now. I won the Theatre World Award for Priscilla. Oh, yes. And... Tova Felshu asked if she could um, present it to me because she was a fan and a friend. And I was able to get up. It was that winning that award meant more to me than anything. I was able to say in my speech, I know who every person in this room is. (laughs) I said, I have studied you since I was a kid. I said, I have learned all your names. I said, I've watched 
the names of dancers move up to become dance captains and then choreographers. I've watched stage managers become directors. I've seen people move from regional theatre to New York. I've seen people start off as dancers in damn Yankees and then suddenly you disappeared for a few years and then you suddenly turned up again in ballroom. Uh, I said, and this this rumble started to go through the audience. And I said, if ever you think that what you're doing is not important, I said, just remember that you have moved and affected a child on the other side of the world. I said, who knows your work and who follows you and worships you. I said, the actors, the singers, and I said, and especially the dancers. Well, people started to, to whoop in the audience. I said, the dancers, I know who you all are. And I was, and, and, well, it was like people started to applaud and I started to cry. And the organizers of the Theatre World Awards came to me afterwards and they said, anytime you want to come back, and present an award or do anything, you are welcome. And um, Peter, Peter Felicia um, invited me back for um, four times. I went back and presented awards and uh, it culminated in my presenting a lifetime achievement award to Cheetah Rivera. And uh, I could not believe that I was on the stage handing an award to Cheetah Rivera and introducing her, giving a speech and uh, I, that all stemmed from me being a kid and, and taking an interest in, in that subject. It, uh, it's been my lifelong hobby and my lifelong love, and it is, has made me friends all around the world. It's been wonderful. And so for someone who is listening and might not know as much about Australian theatre, where would you recommend that they start in terms of gaining knowledge and all of that? Um, there's there's a couple of very good books. Um, there, there, there are books about the history of Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne and Her Majesty's Theatre in Adelaide. And that is um, mostly where the J.C. Williamson's musicals were, were done. The, the, they were called The Firm and uh, they, they were the, the major um, company that used to import all these shows they they used to bring entire companies out like at the beginning of the 1900s uh people would come out whole shows would come out on the ships and we were the only country that did this that um that used to do replica productions of broadway shows um england pretty much used to do their own versions and also the, there was something about the australian performers uh, I don't know whether it's the weather uh, or whether it's the the sporting background I think it might be sort of the beach culture out here that that everybody's very healthy everybody is very physical and so we produced really terrific dancers out here and and um, choreographers used to come out here and sort of go wow you know, um, it's interesting. There's a lot of Australian dancers working in, on Broadway now and, and all over America. That, uh, that sort of Hugh Jackman, Carolyn O'Connor energy uh, that uh, we, we always had that out here. And uh, so it was it was sort it was sort of a unique thing 
that we only had. And, and we were, were literally were doing replica productions that the dance captains and the stage managers were coming out here and doing. And then by the time we got into the 60s and the 70s, the original directors were coming out uh, here. So, yes, they're, they're, uh, th those books, there's there's a history of the Tivoli, which is the, uh, the, the vaudeville circuit. And there is a specific book uh, about um, Australian musicals, Australian written musicals that's that's the area that we have not uh, yet conquered uh we haven't got the resources really to support writers uh there's not the money to workshop shows um because we're not a tourist based industry out here whereas in in england and america theater is very tourist based and it's a billion dollar industry out here we can only like support three or four big shows at a time yeah um so like currently we've got frozen in sydney and we've got hamilton um that's like that's going to be like the only two big shows for a minute um because we just haven't got the audiences especially now in the when all our borders are closed because of the lockdown uh there's nobody coming into the country yes. um so uh, there's not there's not that enormous turnover of of, of product out here. Um, so it's it's very hard for for writers to uh, to get a foothold out here. But those are the good books to to get started on. You can probably get them on Amazon or, or yeah, Google them. Yes, yes. And it, it's funny that you would mention that Frozen was one of the ones playing because of course you did that parody about a Frozen stage musical. The oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Those those wonderful. Um, uh john walton west and and uh, jason michael snow and and uh oh, the, those wonderful things yes yes they're, they're, they're wonderful those uh we, we we did a downton abbey musical as well and uh yes they they, they did a whole series of them uh which i was i was thrilled to be asked to be involved in that yes and so going back to when you were growing up and becoming an actor, what were some of the things that you learned from having great actors and singers around the house and around you all the time? It, it was interesting. It was, um, I didn't, as I said, I didn't sort of have lessons in anything. So it was, it was very much about osmosis, I think. It was just watching people and, and learning. Uh, there was a very strict code of professionalism at at the JC Williamson's shows about turning up on time. Um, you got fined if you were late for a half hour call. They it it would your pay was docked. You always had to dress well when you when you were leaving the theater. Um, nobody ever took a show off. Oh. Uh, it was very, very unusual to see an understudy go on. Just that work ethic. Uh, that commitment. It, it was also very much about watching my parents in their television years, um, having to create a new live show four or five times a week, um, having to learn that amount of material, having to rehearse it, having to then have the energy and the resources to get up live and perform it. So um, everybody I, I knew worked really really hard so I, I think that was that was what I, I was was picking up on it was interesting that the first show I did 
not having gotten into Godspell, um, was actually the Fantastics. And it was a very small production in, in the round. And I was 17 and I was cast as the boy. And one of the reviews for me said, Tony Sheldon has an, I still remember it. Tony Sheldon has an ease of relations with the audience that cannot be taught. That surprised me. Uh, and I guess that's what I had learned. It was that the audience is your friend and uh, we're doing it for them. And because we were working in such close proximity as theatre in the round, I was, you know, they were there, they were right in front of me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I was very unschooled and, and I, I tripped and stumbled a lot in my early years. Um, my second show after that, I worked for a company that was, um, based on the method Stanislavski and the actor's studio. Well, I swanned in, I was playing the lead in this new Australian play and uh, I thought I knew everything, you know, having <laughs> this ease of relations with the audience. Um, and uh, they pulled me down very smartly and pretty much tried to break me down of, and of, of bad habits and, and to, to, uh, to, to just, you know, knock the cockiness out of me, I suppose and to teach me how to really analyze a script. Um, I was shattered. I was, <laughs> I was broken. I was, I cried a lot. I, I suddenly had, didn't have a leg to stand on, but that's, that's what they used to do in, in that, the, the, the method at the time. Um, so it was interesting. It opened my eyes to a new way of, of working. Uh, but from then I, I was very lucky to work with very serious directors who took the time to teach me uh, how to how to act, basically. So I, I learned on the job, uh, but I, I I achieved a lot of early success. Uh, I did five plays in my first year out of school. My mother was was horrified that I was leaving school early, and she said, "You'll end up in the gutter," you know, <laughs> all these dire warnings. You know, you don't. You need to have a. She she wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor. It was like you know, our whole family had spent their lives starving between jobs. You know, it was like you know, why do you want this insecure profession? But but it was all I knew. I didn't know anything else. Um, but I was very lucky. I, I won awards at the end of my first year, and uh, I I was lucky in that I got a couple of Australian plays that then over the years became classics. And so I was always associated with those, those pieces. Uh, so while I was learning, I also had a fairly high profile in the industry. And it was good because I wasn't competing with my, my family name. I, yes. um, I, I was a dramatic actor and, and so nobody could compare me to the others and uh, yeah it was interesting my my mother also picked up and left um by by the time i was 20 um helen had really hit it big in hollywood and um she said to my mother my mother had had a um a drug problem after my father's suicide 
and uh, she sort of really hit rock bottom and had to go to rehab. And she dropped out for a year out of the industry. And she wrote her story. She sort of came clean. And this was before Betty Ford and all those people, public figures were coming forward and saying, I am a drug addict. Um, my mother wrote an article for a big women's magazine about, you know, I was on prescription drugs for migraines and I got hooked. And she sort of thought it was going to end her career, but it didn't. It had the opposite effect. Everybody really supported her for, for being brave enough to do this. And um, Gypsy was being mounted. Uh, Lansbury had just done the production in the West End. And... Um, J.C. Williamson's bought the rights to it. And they said to my, oh, I, I, was, I was doing a show and I ran into the casting person and they said, we're doing Gypsy and we've already cast it with this woman called Gloria Dawn. Would your mother be interested in being the standby? And I said, no. Oh, I said, good heavens, no, my mother is a star. And uh, I said, you know, I know it's a role she's always wanted, but I don't think she'd be interested in being standby. No, 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 no. Anyway, the next time I saw my mother, I said, do you want to hear something funny? The Williamson's were interested in you understudying Mama Rose. And my mother grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, what did you say? And I said, I said, of course you wouldn't be interested. She said, look at me, I have nothing. She said, I, I have given up absolutely everything. She said, I, I would give everything to play that role. I would sweep the stage to have a crack at that role. And so my mother went in as the standby. And sure enough, like within a week, she was on. And the woman who they had cast as Rose, um, sadly was diagnosed with cancer. And it was just one of those weird things that as her strength ebbed, my mother was playing more and more shows. And finally they put both their names side by side on the marquee. And it was Gloria Dawn and Tony Lamond as Mama Rose in Gypsy at certain performances. And they were playing four shows a week each. I think that must be the only time anywhere in the world that's happened. And um, so mum really made a big, big comeback, you know, at the top of the tree. And she said to me, well, here I am. She said, 20 years ago, I was doing the lead in Pajama Game. She said, and here I am 20 years later, I'm doing the lead in Gypsy for the same company. She said, I think it's time for me to leave the country. She said, there's nothing more I can do here. She said, I'm just going around in circles. And Helen invited mum to go to America. She said, I'll stake you for a year. She said, I'll, I'll cover your rent and if you don't get any work. And so mum moved to LA. She was too frightened to go to New York. New York was pretty scary in the 70s. And yeah. as a woman alone, she she was convinced she was going to get mugged in Central Park. And um, so she went to Hollywood. And uh, she she ended up doing a lot of like regional theater over there. She got the first national company of, of Annie. Um, interesting.
recently with Jane Cannell as Miss Hannigan. So mum was able to say, we saw you in Once Upon a Mattress. Um, um, she, uh, she did Drood. Um, she played Princess Puffer in Drood. Um, she, she did productions of Oliver. She did Fraulein Schneider in Cabaret. She did, she, um, did Dolly. She covered Yvonne DiCarlo in Dolly and then took over. Um, she did a lot of productions of 42nd Street. Uh, with people like Gretchen Weiler and Ruta Lee. Um, she did a lot of stuff. So while she was doing all of that, um, I sort of had the, the, the coast was clear out here um, for, for my career to, uh, to, to take off out here. So yeah, that, so that brings us like to about the mid seventies, 76, yes. 77, yeah. And so I would be curious to know when you were sort of at the height of your career as an Australian theatre actor and musical theatre actor, did you find that there were certain shows that did better in Australia than New York or the reverse? And why do you think that that might have been? Yeah, we, we didn't do too well with sort of avant-garde, um, cutting edge. It was, it, was, uh, it was interesting that uh, one of the companies actually put out a, a questionnaire um, about what people wanted to see. And the results were things like the Desert Song and White Horse Inn. And it was like, oh, really? Um, so the, the shows that were doing well were, like Nanette really did well out here. Um, no, no, Nanette. Uh, Sid Charisse came out and did No, No, Nanette out here. and. Um, everybody was very excited that a big MGM dancing star was coming out to play the lead in No, No, Nanette. What, what nobody had thought to ask was, um, could she tap? It turned out Sid Charisse couldn't tap dance. And so she had to be taught the I want to be happy <laughs> number from scratch. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. Um, the, uh, they also brought out Paul, Paul Wallace was playing the Bobby Van part, Paul Wallace, who was Tulsa in Gypsy on Broadway and in the film. Um, so they they put in a new number, a sort of a, a torrid jazz dance for Paul Wallace and Sid Charisse to do, uh, which did, sort of didn't really fit in with the 1920s uh, feel of the rest of the show, but it was good to see them dance. Um, and then Sid did the show for a year and it was still such a success um that uh, they replaced her they they brought out Yvonne De Carlo who had just closed in Follies oh um because uh, the show had gone to LA and and that company had not taken off and uh, so suddenly Yvonne De Carlo was free and she came out and replaced um Sid Charisse. and uh she she was uh she was very funny she thought the uh, the mafia was out to get her. Um, she decided that somebody had put a hit on her. Um, and uh, there was a moment where she was uh, singing a number alone on stage and a car backfired um, out on the street and she hit the floor. She hid under the piano. She thought somebody was was trying to shoot her. She also came on one, one day um, in the, the big party scene at the end of No, No, Nanette, uh, the take a little one step scene. And uh, instead of her usual line, she chose to say one of her lines from Follies, which was, what this party needs is a good kick in the ass, uh, which, which left 
which left the chorus kids somewhat open-mouthed. Um, so yes, Yvonne, Yvonne was a bit of a character. Um, but yeah, shows like uh, like Nanette did did very well um, in Australia. My Fair Lady got endless revivals. We, um, we don't have anything like summer stock out here. There, there is only the big productions, the, the mainstream big productions, which as I said, there's like four or five at the most per year. Um, which which is hard because there's, there's not really a, a training ground like there is in America for 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 people to go and work in regional theatre or or do summer stock. Um, it's like here it's it's it, there's Broadway or nothing, you know. There's, <laughs> the, you, but some of the uh, the smaller theatre companies that usually just did plays um, suddenly decided to branch out and do musicals, uh, and they were the ones that were doing the Sondheims and um the, the the more interesting stuff so uh and and they were not bound to do the replica productions from broadway they could actually do their own and put their own spin on the material um so that was great because i i got to do um shows i got to do company and uh merrily we roll along and uh the roar of the grease paint and um forum and for, for for these uh small smaller companies which and they they worked well because they were limited subscription seasons uh so they weren't so dependent on you know are we going to be a hit or not so it, it was it was good because we were still getting the best from overseas but but invariably in short it's like here uh the the sydney theater company is currently doing fun home um which normally wouldn't get a big commercial production. We still eventually do get the best of the best, which is is great. You have been able to do so many of the great roles of theatre, as you were mentioning, but is there anyone that you would still like to do or that you would have liked to do or? Um, I, not really. I, I would have loved to have had a crack at Pseudolus um, in Forum. Uh, and, and I always, wanted to play Heinze in Pajama Game um, just because it was the family connection to the show, um, you know, that mum and dad were both in it. It was such an important part of my my childhood and it's still a show that I love very much. Um, but all the way through my career, I never had a career plan because um, I've always suffered a lot from imposter syndrome. And I've, I've always never really believed in, always never, that's good. Uh, never really had an enormous confidence in, in my own talent. I needed other directors to have the outside eye as to what I would be ripe for. Um, and I'm always the first one to try and talk them out of hiring me. Um, <laughs> I've always, the casting director in me kicks in and whenever I'm offered a job, I always say, oh, you know who'd be better than me? And I would reel off a list of names and they'd say, no, we want you. Um, so I never really set my heart on getting something. Like, I mean, Godspell was such a, a heartbreaker that I didn't get it. Um, ironically, two years after um, the, those Godspell auditions, they came back to me because by then they were putting together national touring companies of it. And two years later, they came to me and said, we want you to do Godspell. But by then 
I was a I was a famous dramatic actor and I didn't need Godspell. And I went, oh no, 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 I'm not interested in your your little show anymore. Um and whenever I did, like me and my girl came into my orbit when that that rolled around in 1985 and Mike Ockrent and Susan Stroman came out to cast that. And I did a string of auditions for the lead in that. And um, it turned out, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really right for it, but I, you know, when you, you, you start to audition for something a lot, and you, it suddenly becomes really important to you that you get it. Um, it turns out that I'd, I'd just come off doing Torch Song Trilogy with which I'd had an enormous success. And uh, it turned out the producers of Me and My Girl did not want somebody associated with a gay play to be playing the lead in Me and My Girl. So I was sort of sabotaged um, by the producers of Me and My Girl. And, but I didn't find that out until much later. Um, so I found it better not to get too attached to to wanting to play certain roles because the disappointment would be too much. And then it would be a lovely surprise when I was offered something that I wasn't expecting. Um, and uh, that, that, that has always been uh, the great joy of my career is, is things turning up out of left field. And how did you sort of, when you were starting out, find your niche in the theatre in terms of the kind of roles that you could play? As I said, um, Australia it's very sporty, very, the, the whole image of the Australian male is very macho. And so when I was starting out, um, a lot of the, most of 99% of the kids, the actors in my age group were these very tough Aussie um, sort of suntan sporty people. Um, I was very sensitive and, uh, you know, I, I was always gay and um, a, a, two of the plays that I did in my first year were gay characters, gay teenage characters. And uh, it was very easy for me. It was, it was something that was right in my wheelhouse. I didn't have to think about it. I had no embarrassment about playing them I was always out um and so I did them very well and it was interesting that the leading critic of the time the leading newspaper critic a very bright woman named Kathleen Catherine Brisbane um she was an admirer of mine and she said after the second play gay character that I played now it's time for you to do something else. She said, because you've got to just prove to yourself that you have are more versatile than this, you know. So um, I, I changed my whole image. I, um, I went and did rep for a year um, in um, a country town that was starting uh, a repertory company. And in that year, I did The Glass Menagerie. I did Equus, um, a, a, an Australian play where I played a sort of a, um, an adulterous husband. Um, I played a 40-year-old a, a steel worker. Uh, it was like a whole bunch of really different, different roles. Um, and then I, when I came back to Sydney, I did a lot of Shakespeare. 
and I dyed my hair blonde. I was I was your color up until then, and uh, it was like I grew a mustache, and I changed changed my whole look and my whole image, and uh, sort of became a leading man. Basically, it was just about rounding out the 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 picture, you know, to let to let casting people know that I could do other things. And uh, then it was sort of safe to dip my toe back into musicals. Um, Candide came along um, and uh, an Australian musical called The Venetian Twins, um, which was a big hit. We, we toured Australia uh, with that. Um, I Love My Wife came along and I got Alvin in that. Um, so by the time Torch Song rolled around, which was interesting. That was bought by J.C. Williamson's, this the firm, again. Um, they were suddenly buying this big gay play. And my best friend had seen it in New York and he came back and he said, I think this is a role for you. And I didn't know anything about it. And I got a copy of the published script and I absolutely went, oh, yes, indeedy. And the original director, Peter Pope, was coming out to direct it. And that was the first time that I really said, right, th this is my part and I'm going to make sure I get this. It was fascinating to me that a, that a, a major company was going to take on this 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 very risky play um anyway I, I did a couple of auditions for it and I got it there, there, there was only like two other people in competition with me which was interesting um it was a very small narrow field and that was the first time I got my name above the title in a big commercial show so suddenly there was my name Tony Sheldon in Torchong Trilogy, all over town, which was great. And um, it, was a, it was a wonderful production. Uh, well, it was the, it was the Broadway production. Uh, we, we got rave reviews in Sydney. We were picketed on opening night mm -hmm. by the religious right, um, who were trying to shut us down. But, of course, that was great publicity for us. But we were, we were in a very big theatre in Sydney, and we didn't get the houses and we thought we were going to close after a couple of months. Thank and, you for listening. And a little theatre in Melbourne with sort of some novice producers, they bought the rights and they took the show into a very small theatre like that seated like 300 and they changed the marketing. They, the, the, the original ad was a picture of me with the makeup on, the, the drag makeup, <clears throat> and the, it said, meet Arnold. You might have more in common than you think. That was the poster. Didn't work. So they, they took me off the poster and they put Ed and Laurel, the, the, the married couple, on it, and then they put me and my mother on the other picture, the, the character of my mother, um, Arnold's mother, and they marketed it as a sort of a family show. And 
it took off in Melbourne and we broke all the records and we ran over a year. And uh, then we came back to Sydney sort of in triumph and did a return, did a return season. Um, so uh, that, that, that was the show that really put my name on the map. Um, that made me a star and uh, in Australia and I won all the awards. And um, I, I have to say at this point, I was um, very sad when I went to America and um, Harvey was doing The Catered Affair. Oh. And uh, I was passing through New York for a week on vacation. I was doing Priscilla in the West End. And I, I left him a card at the stage door and said, I, I was your Arnold in Australia um, for, for well over a year. And uh, I would just love to, to say hello. Um, and I'll be waiting for you at the stage door. And I waited and he came out and he walked straight past me. Oh. And uh, then when Priscilla came to Broadway, he didn't come and see the show. And uh, one day there was a bomb, a bomb scare in Times Square. And uh, I arrived for work and there, there had been police cordons all around the Palace Theatre where I was doing Priscilla. And I came down and walked through the wardrobe department and there was Harvey Feierstein. And I looked at him and he said, I got trapped here um, <laughs> because of the bomb scare. And I said, oh, it took a bomb scare to get you inside the Palace Theatre, did it? I was furious. And I sort of went on the attack. I'd never met this man. And I absolutely went on the attack. I was so offended that, <laughs> that he hadn't supported Priscilla. Um, I, I, I just thought it was sort of mean of him. And... Uh, I, I think he was really taken aback. And the next time I saw him, he'd written, oh, he, we once passed each other in the street and I saw him hide when he saw me coming. Um, but then he wrote Casa Valentina, which I saw at a preview and I was knocked out by and I walked up the aisle at the end and he was standing at the back of the theatre and I saw him flinch as I came towards him. And I shook his hand and I said, I think this is your masterpiece, because I really did. And so I, I feel I made amends. Um, but uh, it, it, it did make me sad that, that he, he didn't. So I, I, I think maybe he, he might have been a little bit jealous about this uh, Australian gay musical that suddenly came in, you know, to town. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, but yeah. so, yeah. So I'd be curious to know, as an actor, how did you sort of find your own approach or put your own spin on all these roles that you were doing? As I said, I, I, I it, it was a, it was a, it was always a mixture. I, it was a sort of a blessing of coming from the musical theatre background and having that sort of slight, slightly heightened sense of performing, but also being taught by wonderful directors along the way. It, it very much depends on, on the role. There's also, as I said, there's, there's also been a lot of insecurity 
about me. Uh, I'm always questioning whether I'm any good and whether I'm doing it right, um, which often often works against me. Um, it's good for something like Long Day's Journey in Tonight um, when there are three other like-minded people on stage with you all creating this very intense world you know it's uh that that has been that that was one of the most satisfying shows i've ever done was doing eugene o'neill and you know tearing yourself apart on stage for for three and a half hours um i've also never laughed as much backstage as as on that show you know the relief when you come off uh, but it worked against me on like the producers playing roger debris and the producers it was a show I didn't want to do. Um, it was a role I didn't want to play. And the management asked me three times to audition for it. And I said, if I'm, if I'm going to go for it, I want to play Max, Max Bialystok. And they said, no, 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 you're not right for Max. I said, well, that's, it's Max or nothing. So I went in and I did a video audition to, to be sent to Mel Brooks and Susan Stroman. Uh, I don't know whether the tape even got sent, but three times they said, please come in for Roger Debris, please come in. I said, I don't want to play that part. I just don't want to play it. I don't like it. And my, my partner of 41 years said to me, listen, you know, it's a great compliment that they are asking you to, this many times. The least you can do is have the decency to go in and meet with the management, you know. So I did, and I did a couple of auditions, and I got the part for my sins. And uh, it was a nightmare because we had... Susan Stroman came out for the first week, uh, and she mostly worked with the Bialystok and Bloom. Um, she sort of let me go, you know, yeah, what you're doing is fine. But then she left and she said, I'll come back for production week. And we were left in the hands of the stage manager and uh, the choreographer who was the wonderful Warren Carlyle. Now, Warren was wonderful to me because he, I hadn't danced at the audition and he really pushed me in that springtime for Hitler number. He wanted me to do all the tapping. And he kept saying, oh, here's Stanley Leroy added um, for the tour didn't do. And I said, whatever made you think I could do all this? You know, and he said, I just knew. And he, he believed in me and he pushed me. Um, however, our director, um, the stage manager, and this was something that happened with all the companies of the producers, all the replacements. Everybody was so terrified about recreating the formula of that original cast that none of us were given any leeway. None of us were given any freedom to create our own characters. We had to do replica performances of what had been done in that original cast. And so there I was in playing a part I didn't want to play in a show I didn't want to be in, giving a performance I didn't want to do because they were because they were making me do Gary Beach's performance, and it was torture for me. Um, and I I used to go home every night after the show, 
And I would do it all again from beginning to end in my head, trying to find another way in, trying to find a way to, to bring something new to that material. And in the 18 months that I did that show, <laughs> I never did. Uh, because to do that would subvert the material. It would stretch the fabric of the show. It would tear the fabric of the show. You've got to play Roger Debris the way he's written. And he's written as a stereotype. Um, so you can do whatever you like within those boundaries, but you can't make him somebody else, you know, otherwise he's just not funny. Um, it was interesting. We, they made me dye my hair black to look like Gary Beach. And uh, I had been dyeing my hair various colours over the years anyway. Um, we, we had a four-week layoff between Sydney and Melbourne or something. And I went and I did another play in the middle. We'd, we'd finished, you know, a six-month run in The Producers. And then I went and I did this Australian play. And I played a womanizing, creepy um, university professor, a completely different character. And I cut all my hair off and it grew out white, this color. I had never seen this white hair. And doing this other play where I was allowed to think for myself and create, you know, a new character, I thought, I'm not stupid. I'm not an idiot. I can think for myself. And so when I went back into the producers for the next leg of the tour, I said, I want to play Roger Debris with this colour hair. <laughs> I want it to be different. And unbelievably, our producer said to me, oh, but can you still be funny? As if the colour of my hair was going to wreck everything. And I, I am told they actually sat in the previews and clocked my laughs to make sure I wasn't losing anything because my hair was not Gary Beach's colour. But, but we, uh, the Americans didn't come back for the next leg of the tour, the American production team. So we sort of claimed it ourselves. We, um, we, we attacked it with a renewed energy and we, um, we, we, we made the show our own for the last half of the, the tour. Um, but I still, still was stuck. You know, once you're taught something a certain way, it's very hard to, to break out of it. Um, so again, the long answer. Um, it, every show required a different, a different approach. Um, but I think I think that was what made Priscilla so successful for me was that I had an absolute belief in the truthfulness of that character, and and uh, I, I think that was why I did score such a hit with it because it was very easy to burlesque it or to get caught up in the the campery that was going on around you, but uh, I, I had I had forty years of of straight theatre behind me that made me absolutely want to play her down the line, and that's I, that's where I stayed with her for two thousand and six performances. You know. Yeah. So of course this episode will be out for Pride Month. I would love to ask you if or just what it was like to be a gay actor in Australia and America and if there was ever any difficulty to that or? Yes, yes. Um, it, was, it was mostly in television, television and film. And 
I never, I never struck any problems with it in the theatre. But yes, in, in, in television, I, I, I personally got into trouble because I gave an interview to a gay newspaper. We found out there was an unofficial list at one of the casting agents, a TV and film casting agent, the, the biggest TV and film casting agent in Sydney of gay actors or actors who were perceived to be gay. And it was sort of known around the traps as the pink list um, that, that you would not get jobs um, unless they were specifically for gay roles. Yeah. But if you were known to be gay, you would not be cast in straight roles or considered. And uh, I, I mentioned this as part of a very long interview. It was sort of in passing. It was, I talked to this guy for like an hour and a half and, and this was one of many things that I made reference to. And I sort of knew that I'd made a mistake as soon as I said it. And the next few days while I was waiting for this paper to hit the stands, I was very anxious. And I remember it, it came out on a Friday morning and I, I got up at 6 a.m. I was that nervous and I went to the newsstand and got the paper and there it was on the front page of a national gay magazine with my photograph and Tony Sheldon exposes discrimination in the industry. And I got home and the phone started ringing and it was radio stations were calling me to do live interviews. Are you accusing this management of discrimination against gay performers? And I said, um, well, yes. I said, this is what I've heard. And then, then one of the radio stations says, well, we have the head of that agency here in the studio or on the other phone or something. They didn't warn me. And so suddenly, and of course, they're going to say, no, this is absolute rubbish. No such list exists. Tony Sheldon is making this up and all of that. Well, of course, I started to backpedal very quickly because I suddenly saw my career imploding. By the time the, the national newspapers started to ring me, I was completely backing down and saying no comment. And so they printed that. Tony Sheldon was very quick to backtrack when so-and-so. And, so. and uh, I realised I had done enormous damage. By the same token, I was getting personal phone calls from other gay actors saying, thank you for bringing this out to the open. Uh, suddenly, my agent was getting calls from this particular casting agency for me to come in oh. to audition for everything. Uh, it was like I was being called in to audition for middle-aged Spaniards or, you know, six-year-old Swedish girls. It was like I was called in for everything. They just made sure that I had to get on that bus every day and come in for stuff that I was not right for, but just to show that they weren't discriminating against anybody. And this went on for several days and... 
I remember on the, the fifth day one of the casting people just walked past me in a corridor where I was standing by myself and she just said, you are a very, very silly boy. And that was all that was said. And then the call stopped coming for me to come in. Um, but I was, you know, nothing, nothing good came of it. Uh, I was never called in for any, I think I was called in for the film of Moulin Rouge was the only thing that I was ever called in for in the subsequent years. And uh, I don't know whether the system changed, but uh, yeah, that, that got me into trouble. Yeah, yeah. And on, on that same sort of subject, I would love to ask about another seminal gay role that you played, which was in Falsettos in Australia. Yes, except I played Mendel. Oh. I was the psychiatrist. Um, that was such a joy to do. <clears throat> um, that was um, the Sydney Theatre Company was doing that and uh, doing their own production. And that was up and running. I wasn't in it. Um, that was up and running in Sydney. And um, it was about to go on tour. And I was working with the guy who was playing Mendel um, directing him and two other people in concert that was going on at the Sydney Opera House. And so I was working with this guy every day during the day. He wasn't going to go on the tour as Mendel. His understudy was going to take over for the tour. And uh, suddenly on the Sunday, the day off, which was four days before the tour was going to go out, the management took me, called, called me and asked me to go for lunch. The producers of Falsettos called me and they said, the guy playing Mendel can't go all of a sudden. His son is ill and he can't leave town. They said, could you learn the show in four days and open on Thursday? Now, I'd, I'd seen Falsettos once and I, I think I'd only heard the album once. <laughs> uh, and they, they threw a lot of money at me. <laughs> And uh, I said, well, um, I'm, I'm directing this concert. <laughs> they said, please. They said, we, we want you, you know, we really want you to come and do it. And uh, I, I just had to go and sing through it with the musical director to make sure it was in my range. And it was. So I went in the next day to, to continue to do my final day of working on this concert. And I said to this guy, I'm replacing you. And he, he started to teach me the opening choreography for Four Jews in a Room Bitching. He said, oh, well, forget the concert. This is what you have to do. I went, no, 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 I'm confused. Um, so I had to leave the concert and I, I was given a tape of the show, the Australian cast. I, I went and I watched it once on the Monday night. I looked at it and I thought that I don't want to see it again because I don't want to copy his performance. And I rehearsed on the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday. And I was learning the show off this tape. And on the Wednesday night at midnight, I said to my partner, all right, you sit on the sofa. I'm going to do falsettos for you. And I put on the tape of the, the Sydney cast and I did the entire show singing along to the tape for my, for my partner until 2.30 in the morning. 
and I got got through the whole thing. And then the next day I got on a plane and opened as Mendel. And I loved it. I I loved every single second of doing that show. I I missed the opportunity of working with William Finn, who came out and worked with, with the cast out here. And th they told me that he was rewriting stuff on the spot. They said, you know, he'd just sit at the piano and grab a piece of paper and say, oh, add this. And uh, so he was he was very open to making changes. But also they'd been doing it for a long time in Sydney. And so by the time the show went on tour, uh, there was only one other new person. There was a new playing wizard. So we were young and perky and, and you know, excited about doing the, the, the show. And everybody else was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're over it. So I think they, they thought we were a bit too enthusiastic. Um, but I won an award. I got a Best Supporting Actor award for it. I was, I was so surprised and so thrilled. We were all nominated. Um, but I, I was really, really thrilled that this show that I had learned for, for, in four days, and I only got to play it um, for a couple of months on the tour. But uh, what a wonderful project to be involved with. And um, I, I loved the Broadway revival. And I was so thrilled that my, my darling friend, Nick Adams, and um, the fabulous Max von Essen got to do that the tour. So uh, yeah, yeah, that 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 was a, a fabulous experience. And so something else that you did, which was very different than falsettos, was what you wrote for TV, which was Doctors and Nurses, I believe it was called. And so I'd love to ask you about that. That that was a, a very strange piece. Um, there were there were four writers and the the story was divided up between the four of us and we all went and wrote separate sections of the film and then it was all put together I'd never worked anything like that before uh, but it was a send-up of soap operas uh, like General Hospital and it was set in a hospital and the entire cast was kids uh, playing adults and it was all shot in the grounds of a real hospital and um, so we, we would divvied up certain characters and uh, I had my characters were two twin twin nurses they were beautiful glamorous blonde nurses and they were twin sisters and one was good and one was evil and uh, so the evil one uh, was impersonating the good one to get her to get her boyfriend. Um, that was one of my storylines, and the other one was a man with amnesia called Mister X who couldn't remember his own name, and that was great fun to to write because it was total non sequiturs the whole time. He couldn't he couldn't even remember the last thing he'd said, so that was very very funny. Um, uh, and I think there was a third third character, but it it didn't work because we were all writing this, this comedy. We were, we were basically writing like a Mel Brooks film and the kids couldn't do it. I mean, they, they weren't skilled comedians. They were, they were just ordinary kids. So possibly like one or two of the performances nailed it, but the rest of them were just a bunch of kids saying words and they really, we're not landing the material. 
Um, so sadly, doctors and nurses disappeared into the mists of time. Um, it, it might be available on DVD somewhere, but uh, yes, it's. Uh, but it was it was my only screenwriting credit. Um, at the time, I was writing um, real soap operas. Uh, I, I wrote a soap for a year called Sons and Daughters, uh, which was an intriguing experience and gave me a new appreciation of you know the young and the restless and the bold and the beautiful. It's a real skill um, to make that work. And I was also a storyliner, which meant I had to go into an office five days a week and sit around a desk with a bunch of other people. And you, you are mapping out for six months at a time the stories for all those characters. And you've got to plan where it's all going and how it's going to end. And, and then the casting of those people and, and uh, then divvying up each episode, five, five episodes a week to five different writers. And so then you go home and you're writing those episodes. Then you're going home and you're watching the ones that are already being filmed when they go to air. So you're living in three different time frames. And I did that for a year and I made more money than I have ever made as a performer. I mean, it was a very highly paid job. And had I stuck with it, I would probably have a mansion by the sea and a yacht, but it was sort of soul destroying because it took up my entire life. I had no social life outside of that. Um, and it, it was so such a specific way of writing. Um, it, there was not real humor was not really allowed in and you couldn't, you couldn't color outside the lines in other words. Um, so when I, when Torch Song came along, uh, I grabbed that opportunity and waved goodbye to, uh, to, to the TV writing thing. So all my writing since then has been for, um, mostly for cabaret, um, performers, uh, nightclubs, review. It, uh, it was interesting. I've never been, never really been able to write for myself as a cabaret performer. I don't really have the objectivity to write well for myself, but I can write very well for other people. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I was making a, a parallel living um, in cabaret in Australia, writing and directing um, shows for other people, which was was great fun and very lucrative. Mm. Yes, yeah. So, And um, that is where I ended part one of my interview with the amazing Tony Sheldon. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to come back next time for part two. <laughs>